You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. All right, you hear a new theme song, Sectarian Review. Listeners, uh, I have to send a shout out and a thanks to the Blind Revelators, who uh, I reached out to let them to ask me to ask them if they would let me use their cover of uh, the old uh, great gospel song, "Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down." And they said, "Yeah, sure, why not? Go ahead and do it." Um, apparently, they're uh, not active right now anyway, but uh, I nonetheless I uh, encourage you to go out and look for them. I found them on a, a YouTube journey one night. They just sort of <laughs> accidentally popped up. I'm like, "Wow, this is perfect," and uh, and so it all worked out really well so yeah if you uh, ever get a chance to uh, go check out the links I'll put to their material in the show notes and uh, and I'll probably put a link to on the Facebook page and whatnot as well so but uh, you are listening to the Sectarian Review Podcast I am Danny Anderson as always and uh, today I'm joined by um, someone who has been on the show uh, before uh, Chris Burlingame Uh, he's a colleague of mine here uh, at Mount Aloysius College Chris uh, why don't you for those of you who for those of our listeners who haven't listened to you yet yet. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what your uh, interests are? Okay, sure. Um, I am our, our writing consultant and study skills specialist here at Mount Aloysius College. Um, and sort of at the same time, I'm, I'm completed my coursework in my PhD program with a sort of special focus on what's called transgressive literature, things that um, in, in many ways attack sort of the cultural or societal norms. Um, and so they deal with sort of graphic sex, violence, um, drug abuse, and more often than not, sort of the, the standard definition is that the authors don't pass any sort of moral judgment. They just show it as it is. Um, and that has sort of provoked a backlash to, to their works and their portrayals because for whatever reason, critics want to see that, that moral element um, in a work. If it's going to be real satire, it should be moral too. Um, or the morals should be more evident, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what my focus is. And I'm looking at not just the, the transgressive literature itself, but what happens to that transgressive message when it gets translated to some other medium, whether that's, uh, a graphic novel or, or more often than not, it's film. Um, and so what does that mean? That's a perfect topic for the show, <laughs> for the Christian Humanist Radio Network, of course, to talk about sex and violence and all that. Uh, we're not going to talk so explicitly about that, lest you be afraid, uh, dear listener. Uh, but we are, uh, Chris and I were just having an informal conversation recently about something he's working on. And I think it's a really interesting um, subject and kind of a perfect fit for our show. We've been doing this little kind of sequence of pop culture things. We did Last Jedi and Spider-Man and all these sorts of things. And um, I would like to bridge back into politics a little bit. So I think this is kind of a, a perfect segue into that because it does deal with a pop culture artifact as well as a political uh, subject um, that we will get into in one second. Um, but first, before we do that, I wanted to uh, just make another announcement that this is we are recording in my new uh, like setup office here. We're calling it the studio. And uh, I got some funny suggested names on Facebook 
to name the studio certain things. Uh, the Unpadded Room, Jay Eldred. Uh, the, uh, the Grassy Knoll, which works really well from Carter Stepper. Uh, Shabby Road, Wittsville, USA from uh, Adam Sorber. Uh, and I really like Zach Rogers, The Gulag. That works really well. Uh, Jeff Carter, The Sectarium, Delirium. Uh, and uh, they go, and The Dreamatorium came up. I think someone else on Twitter suggested uh, The Satellite of Love or something like that. These are <laughs> these have been a lot of fun. Uh, so sometime I'm going to settle on a, an actual name. So go to that, go to our Facebook page and you can find the conversation where I have some pictures of what's going on in here and, uh, and add to the conversation. It's been a lot of fun to read, but uh, let's get into the subject for today. We're talking about um, American psycho. I guess I haven't introduced that yet. The uh, both the book and the movie and the kind of adaptation that sits between them. Right. And, yeah. uh, and particularly what they, have to say about how they use and what they have to say about Donald Trump. Um, uh, those of you who have only seen the movie, um, you're uh, probably unaware that Donald Trump is a kind of a major figure in the book. And so that was news to me. I have not read the book either. Um, I've only seen the movie several times. Uh, but this sub- subject is really interesting. So first of all, Chris, what's the like, what are some of the differences between the book and the movie? Well, the the big difference is the one that you mentioned, which is that in adapting it, Mary Heron and um, the the screenwriter chose to completely exclude these references to Donald Trump, which are really explicit. There's more than thirty in in the novel, um, not just to Donald Trump as a as a person, but also specifically to Donald Trump's art of the deal, because. Um, in 2016, as Trump was running for office and campaigning to eventually become the president, um, Brett Easton Ellis was sort of doing this 25-year anniversary tour for his book. So he did a lot more interviews, and he said um, Patrick Bateman was exclusively modeled off of the Donald Trump we see in The Art of the Deal. Mm. As he was you know, writing his draft, he was sort of simultaneously reading that, and it points in the in the book, he actually has the art of the deal on his desk. It's like the only real book that you would have there, kind of like you'd have, you know, word for dummies or whatever. He has the art of the deal. Um, so I think one of the things to keep in mind with the film adaptation is that there, there was a lot of sort of controversy around the release of the novel as sort of being anti-feminist. Mm. And it's hard to know what to do with Ellis's claim that he was writing a feminist satire because he likes to be provocative and he likes to sort of, you know, poke the bear, so to speak, with um, these uh, these comments uh, about calling it a feminist satire when there's so much graphic violence, so much anti-female sentiment in the way Bateman engages with the world. But the real thing is that when they when they wanted to do the adaptation, they brought on Mary Heron, who had a really well-established sort of feminist reputation. Mm. And the Guinevere Turner, the screenwriter, and Mary Heron both said in several interviews, um, you know, we wanted to clarify his vision of it being a feminist satire. And I think one of the, the conscious decisions they made was to exclude Trump references at all, um, because that would make Bateman influenced by a specific person rather than sort of this overarching, uh, what, what Zilla Eisenstein called like the patriarchal capitalism, um, which, you know, is, is sort of what it seems like Bateman is meant to be critiquing in a broader sense, more so than just his association with 
Trump himself. Yeah, that's really interesting. You were talking about that earlier with me, and I was. That's a really good point because if it is, if Donald Trump is in there, there is a sort of single source who can be blamed, like an individual person who can be blamed for the corruption uh, mm-hmm. that we see in Patrick Bateman. Uh, and th- I guess for those of you who don't know about the movie uh, and don't care to watch it and don't worry about spoilers, um, <laughs> it's a it's a serial killer. Uh, sort of narrative um, taking place on the, uh, the this kind of high-powered Wall Street uh, broker type person is also a serial killer. Maybe it's a very kind of trippy uh, story, but uh, if, it's kind of difficult to describe. But uh, if you uh, uh, haven't seen it or unaware of it, I apologize for being late to the party there. But uh, the idea that um, if if Donald Trump is in there, we have a sort of singular source, an individual who can be blamed. Um, whereas if you remove him, then it becomes more of a systemic uh, yeah. critique, uh, which is more, uh, the, I guess the feminist message then could be a little more easily uh, teased out that this is yeah. a system of relationships that that's caused, that's created Patrick Bateman. Yeah. And there's, there's another really great critique of the book, um, where they talk about sort of the psycho aspect of the title of him being crazy. Um, and one of the things that sort of was unsettling for readers in, in a first read through when it came out in 1991 was that they don't provide sort of any childhood trauma or any sort of source of why he went crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really unsettling because at least if you can say, Oh, he was sexually abused as a child or he was beaten as a child or, or whatever, um, we have this source or a justification. And the thing that is is in many ways so transgressive is by allowing him to be a product of a system, a, a consumerist patriarchal capitalist system, then you know, those people who think they're innocent, they didn't contribute to it, are in some ways sort of culpable as well. And so it sort of points the finger back at at even the, you know, if we're looking at this in terms of voters now, even the people who didn't vote for Trump are sort of responsible because they engage and participate in this very sort of systemic um, thing. Yeah, I want to, I, I definitely want to get there. Um, that whole uh, you, Trump, Trump as a kind of uh, symptom more than, than a, a a purveyor of a, of a problem and which actually makes me wonder as we were talking like how much of donald trump i mean it, he is kind of a creation himself more, oh yeah more than a person right and, and you'd mentioned before something about uh, his ghostwriter mm-hmm. uh for art of the deal basically wrote a character that yeah that yeah, donald yeah. trump just stepped into yeah there was a night in i think it was october of 2016 right before the election tony schwartz who was the ghostwriter um for Art of the Deal in 1987 sort of had this moment of guilt and need to sort of, you know, clarify what he did and what he created. And he said um, his his editor at New York Magazine at the, at the time said, Trump is um, is a creation of Tony Schwartz. He's Frankenstein. Schwartz, the, the ghostwriter, is Frankenstein and created this monster. And one of the things that Schwartz said is, I knew I couldn't write the book and not have him be a sympathetic character. So I created a version of Donald Trump and I sort of pared away the worst traits, um, which are things now that like, if you're watching interviews with Michael Wolf about fire and fury, um, there was one on the daily show where he basically said, yeah, Trump is stupid. There's nothing actually <laughs> going on in there. Um, and Ellis even brought this point up as well. He says, you know, a lot of the, the aversion to Trump is, purely aesthetic because really there's no driving ideological force behind him. Um, And so that, that brings into question that idea of, is it the patriarchal capitalist model that 
produce Trump or is there something else going on there? Yeah, and that actually there's a nice match with one of the famous lines of, of Patrick Bateman in that movie. He sort of is narrating his day and, mm-hmm. and he sort of talk, just ultimately says, I am not there, there is no me or something mm-hmm. like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he says there's a version of a Patrick Bateman it says something along the lines of, like, you can reach out and shake my hand and you feel skin, but I simply am not there. I'm something illusory. And it's in, in the film, it's this, it's made into this sort of iconic image of him peeling off what, what he calls his herbal mint face mask as he's going through this beautification <laughs> ritual. It's actually really perfectly timed as a voiceover. Um, they're completely disconnected from one another in the book. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about Trump being sort of an illusion himself. Um, and so there's, the, the thing that was so startling to me, um, I was sort of put on to this idea in seeing the Ellis interviews, but the more that I read, and, and really it's more about exposure for Donald Trump, because, you know, up until sort of the, the outbreak of Twitter in particular, you only saw Trump in very controlled environments on The Apprentice or as sort of a projection out of this 1987, The Art of the Deal. Um, and it's when we get sort of this unfiltered version of him that we see sort of even worse parallels that you can tie back directly to the novel. You're like, oh, my God, he said something racist, and it's exactly like this scene. <laughs> um, he said something sexist. It's exactly like this scene. Or he's dehumanizing different groups of people. Um and, and you can draw it back. Like, I haven't found an instance yet where I haven't been able to tie it back to the novel or to something in the film. And that's kind of even more unnerving is he's no longer a character caricature. He is sort of the living embodiment of what Ellis was critiquing in, in 1991 and what, what Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner were sort of picking apart in the 2000 film adaptation. So 91 is the, when the book was written yeah, and 10 years later for the film. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, we were uh, mentioning this earlier that um, uh, it's, you don't really see Donald Trump between the eighties and, no, <laughs> and, and no. the apprentice, right? He's just sort of like a kind of a, a, a famous person who, and he's almost cuddly. He has that cameo in home alone too. Right. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there is no sort of like um, Donald Trump, as we know him now is kind of another invention of the apprentice. Right. Mm-hmm. And then later on Twitter. Uh, and so it's interesting. There is this sort of dark period uh, between the Donald Trump that, um, that Ellis is writing about in American psycho, the novel and, the Donald Trump that will eventually become president of the United States. Right. Yeah. And so the interesting thing there is like in, in 1987 and the art of the deal comes out, Ellis is writing his draft. And, you know, the, the other thing that's interesting is that right around the publication, this book actually had to switch publishing houses because parts of it were leaked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sort of got all of this feminist backlash. They had to change publishing houses. It came out and there were these threats of boycotts and everything. And it's sort of like from that 1991 to about, uh, I want to say the early 2000s. I forget when exactly The Apprentice sort of came on. But yeah, we get Donald Trump only in these small, controlled little instances. We said like, you know, uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. You see him on for like a five-minute segment. Or you would see him pop up. Uh, he did some appearances in WWE. It was WWF then, now it's WWE. The wrestling stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you also saw him occasionally come on and do like a little bit on Howard Stern. Um, and there's a lot of the sexism that comes there that people seem to want to deny now. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess you also there was a tabloid president, his divorces and stuff. I, mm-hmm. I a lot of that was going on in the nineties, right? I mean, there was, but it, I don't know. It seemed like a local interest story, at that right? Point. Right, and that's one of the things that the the um, I think it was the editor of the book said. You know, and one of the things actually that Schwartz came out and said is, I took someone who was just a New York, basically like a New York problem, and I made him national yeah. um, by softening him this way. Yeah, yeah. And and during that time, I mean, he's basically just selling his name to things. I mean, that's mm-hmm. basically his business is just leasing out his name. And uh, and yeah, and it's it, it is interesting. And you know, his stakes and all that kind of crap. Yeah. But um, I, I really don't want this uh, to be uh, another critique of Donald Trump as a person, but more like the image of Donald Trump and how it actually has like, it's, it's an invention that has influence then on the mm-hmm. actual culture. And I think it's just a fascinating uh turn of events that can only happen in postmodern America. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, it's also part of this book, actually, draws it out in really interesting ways. Well, let me – so let's go back to the book for just a little bit. Mm-hmm. For Patrick Bateman, you say there's a lot of references to him in the book. What role does Donald Trump play? Well, he's sort of this figure, and, and there are the, all of these instances where Bateman gets confused with other people on the Wall Street circuit, sort of suggesting that in many ways – they're, they're all the same. They're interchangeable. Um, you know, at one point he kills someone or theoretically kills someone, and then he gets confused for that person. And then someone says, oh, no, I saw that guy that, that he had just talked about killing. I just saw him around, you know, in this at this restaurant. Um, so we get this idea of sort yeah. of – Everybody's like interchangeable. Yeah, right? they're, yeah, they're interchangeable. And so Donald Trump becomes sort of the the figure for him who, who overrides um, – who overrides the where where people sort of converge or get confused with one another? Donald Trump is sort of the figure for him. Um, there was a, a discussion in in one of the articles that I was using for this this paper that I'm writing where it said, you know, um, Bateman will will sort of just parrot whatever he reads in like the New York Times in discussing food, but as soon as Donald Trump says something he will replace what he had been doing with this generic thing from the New York Times. And Trump sort of takes precedence for him in how he approaches the world and how he sort of is trying to create this image of himself in the same way that Trump had an image created for him in in the art of the deal. Yeah, I mean, because this is a world, I mean, where image is kind of everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, it reminds me of Mad Men, which I know I'm like the last person in the world to watch <laughs> Mad Men. Um, it's like no one stopped, everyone stopped caring about it 10 years ago, right? But um, like, we just picked it up. And so uh, people, uh, the smoking, all the smoking is mm-hmm. like a big theme, a motif in that show. And to me, what it, it suggests is, like the first kind of deal that they're trying to to make is a, is a cigarette company. Like right. They have a problem because we know smoking is bad for you. How can we sell this stuff with these government regulations coming down the pike and all this kind of thing? And so they they help them sell this product that everybody knows is bad. And um and, and to me like this constant smoking by all those characters is symbolic of the way that they have kind of bought their own lie right mm-hmm. i mean they they have become their own creation like they're, they're lying to people for profit fun and profit uh and in the advertising industry but they themselves are also victims of what they've done and 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 i feel like patrick bateman in this sense is, is a similar kind of figure he's uh he understands that he's an illusion right yeah and the thing that to keep in mind with with how we view 
Bateman, and I'm sure we'll get to this a little bit later, and is that you kind of have to look at him in two separate lights or two separate existences. One is as a sort of uh, an attempt to imitate or embody Trump himself um, to try and sort of recreate himself, you know, Bateman recreate himself in that image. Um, but really an, a, a more unique way to look at him is as patient zero for Trump supporters. He was like the number one Trump supporter all the way back in 1987. And there's this theory call, uh, about social identity um, that comes from an article called Social Identity and Hermeneutics um, by Georgia Warnke, which sort of allows us to look at Trump as a character. Um, because, you know, the, the ghostwriter has specifically said, yeah, I created a character. So if we look at him as a character and we, we use that same approach that we would use in evaluating any other character in literature, we have sort of a different type of insight than just simply seeing him as a person, you know, and, and then that way we can sort of work backwards to Bateman as a character who is trying to, you know, basically create himself off of another character there's sort of all of these levels of reality that we're playing with sure i mean that's a, it's an ultimate postmodern problem isn't it i mean mm-hmm. it's the simulacrum um yeah you can't uh you can't ever get to the real and, and so yeah and so this is a i mean what's kind of haunting patrick bateman kind of makes him tragic in the movie i mean you i have you have some sympathy for him as a as a serial killer in the movie right yeah one of the things in the movie and in the book is um and, and there's a, a great um essay about the, the book and the film called This this Confession Has Meant Nothing, which is a line at the end of the novel, um, because at one point, Bateman not only offers sort of a written confession of all of these terrible things that he's done, but he, he, he forces a lawyer to meet him in a bar and he confesses, I did all of these terrible things, I killed all of these people. And they just brush it off. They sort of, you know, so he's sort of eaten up by, by trying to be something that he's not. And sort of the contrast to that is, um, Trump doesn't seem to be phased by any lie or anything or any bad thing that he does. He just mm. sort of keeps on moving. And that's sort of where the, where the breaking point is between those two figures is that Bateman is sort of eaten out, up from the inside out. And, you know, we haven't really seen evidence of that with our current president. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, yeah. Well, and honestly, I figure our whole culture has kind of gone that way. I, I mean, this show is, usually interested in religious topics and so we've talked a lot in the past about evangelicals and, and their support of trump and and um that sort of 81 percent of white evangelical number um and, and there does seem to be a, a complete just you they're ditching all of the ethical arguments that they had been making my mm-hmm. entire life right as if they didn't actually matter then and and i had always had the sense that it was just convenient moralizing at the time uh yeah. and, and so I, I feel like they kind of proved me right a little bit but but it is also distressing too that, that there is this kind of um complete buy-in to the character i suppose right um and so to get back to that sort of social identity and hermeneutics yeah. article one of the things that that Warnke points out is this idea of the the hermeneutic circle. Basically, if we so far buy into a social identity, like Bateman does with with Trump or, or the projection of Trump from from Art yeah. of the Deal, um, that we hit a point 
where we can't see anything that contradicts that. We don't allow something in that will compromise. No, there are no single parts that can come mm. in to compromise the whole. Yeah. And that's why I view Bateman as kind of a patient zero um, for, for other Trump supporters, because the same thing is going on. They see Trump as this successful business tycoon. And anything that compromises that would sort of throw their whole worldview into disarray. And so it's much easier to sort of say, no, he's not a sexist. No, he's not misogynist. No, he's not, you know, um, these, these allegations of, of sexual assault or of racism. They don't mean anything because they don't fit with that successful tycoon model or social identity that he's been sort of working in. And he's almost sort of weaponized this social identity to the point that um, he knows other people won't be willing to contradict it. So it gives him a lot more latitude, um, you know, if, if we're going to keep operating within that model. Now, I'm not saying that he is up on Warren Key's article or anything like that, but I think that that's, it's something to, to take note of. Yeah, and I feel like, I mean, this is almost a natural result of 20 years of a culture for 20 years consuming reality television. I mean, Trump is, I mean, we have, be, I mean, that just sort of the form of, of just the, the, the gaming of a, of a reality television show like The Apprentice has become a natural way for us to view the world, right? It's ordered our imagination in such a way that we expect the world to work that way. It just so happens that a presidential primary with 17 or 18 candidates or whatever it was, 19, um, looks a lot like a reality show, yeah, right? And, and, and Donald Trump, um, the, in that image, that apprentice version of Donald Trump was sort of a perfect fit mm-hmm. uh, for, um, uh, the way that people are used to being, having the world mediated for them, I suppose. And, and so I feel like, um, for those of us who are uh, like appalled at Donald Trump and still yet watch The Bachelorette, I, I just, you know, I, I, you're, you're culpable to the system you are perpetuating. Yeah, in some this ways. is yeah. yeah, kind of going back to what you were saying before, right? I mean, this is that that big systemic critique, uh, and I think that Patrick Bateman's because uh, in many ways, like. Mao's liberal philosophies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I don't know, there's this, uh, one pretty famous scene in the movie where people are being, you know, rude and, and he's giving kind of the liberal talking points of the day. You're talking about the eighties. I don't know if you want to go over yeah, that. Yeah. Someone, someone makes a, in the character, they just have slightly different last name than they do in the film. Um, but it's the character that's played by Justin Thoreau in the film makes sort of, an anti-Semitic statement and um, Trump goes on, or I'm sorry, uh, Bateman goes on this, (laughs) Bateman goes on this long diatribe about all of these like politically correct talking points. Um, One's about apartheid. He says, and we need to slow the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism and world hunger, ensure national defense. Um, And then he goes on to say, um, we need to, we need better and more affordable long-term care for the elderly control and to find a cure for AIDS. And he just keeps on going on and on about, you know, um, the war on drugs and things like this. And so in this, this great book, um, called transgressive fiction, the new satiric tradition, um, there's a, a, a great statement at the end that parallels sort of a comment that was made equally about Trump, which is that having no philosophical belief, he has no way of choosing between a buffet of important issues. In part, this is because the names of political issues do not contain hints about their relative merits. So he just goes on this litany uh, and hoping that he's hitting something that will resonate with whoever he's talking to. Yeah, and he doesn't even have to believe any of these things. They're they're sort of talking points that look good on television. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. And, and they look good so Socially, right, mm-hmm. and, and so, um, and this is 
Donald Trump that isn't vulgar like he right. is today, right? And so, and a lot of, and was Trump a Democrat back then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, oh, yeah. And he, <laughs> he's he's made regular comment about how he donated to Hillary, and he sort of calls them out. Oh, you well, you weren't too good to take my money, yeah. you know, as they're critiquing him for all of the terrible things that that he's saying. And what he fails to acknowledge is okay, but that you gave money, that doesn't excuse you for saying, you know, horrendous <laughs> things about third world countries or, or, or whatever. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as we record this, the, we're kind of the, the you know, uh, S-hole uh, controversy is kind of weaving its way through uh, through, yeah. our, uh, through our zeitgeist again. Um, but I think that's one of those things. It's in no way really has his, I mean, the deportations happened under Obama, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's, there's no like... There are differences in the governance, right? And there are like actual tangible effects. I don't want to say that this is no different than if Hillary had been president. There are differences. The differences are not that great, though. Mm-hmm. They're not in scale with the response that we have uh, to him. And I think you're right. It's largely aesthetic. There's this yeah. kind of uh, we're reacting to someone breaking social norms uh, more than the actual damaging policies. Yeah. And there's a really great – from that same interview that I was talking about with with Bait, or with or um, Ellis from from 2017, he went over – because he's really big in, in France. His, his novels really sort of – the transgressive nature of them really fits well with culturally so he's sort of like uh to france what david hasselhoff was to germany right he sort of has rock star status and he went over and he was talking on a panel and someone said oh you must be so relieved to not be um in that awful situation in in the u.s and he's like he 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 wasn't defending trump so much as saying like the response to trump is just outright stupid like people aren't they're they're overreacting they're they're sensationalizing things where they don't need to and not really directing attention where it needs to be because I, of that that desire to like make it bigger than it needs to be. But go back to the the, the adaptation of the uh, movie uh, from the film or the the movie from the book. Um, they purposely removed Donald Trump mm-hmm. um, so that we could make a social uh, like a structural critique of society, right? And Entering Donald Trump into the discourse makes it impossible for us in real life to make yeah. a structural critique of society. Right? Yeah. Um, what, what this, this sort of is where my, my writing kind of concluded. My, my one professor gave me the, the social identity article and another one said, well, what about the death of irony? And he said, you know, um, and as I was sort of doing some research on, on this idea about the death of irony, I came to sort of the conclusion that, um, with Trump and and the statements that he makes, you you have to have sort of an ironic sensibility to or or some sort of accountability to reality to truth to be able to call him out and point out when he's being ironic because he can say things about you know well Obama um, was was obsessive with his golfing and and if I if I ever get to be president I won't ever waste time on the golf course at this point he's I think, closing in on a hundred days of his, yeah. his first year have been spent on a golf course. Yeah. So, you know, he doesn't recognize sort of the hypocrisy. He he's willing to say those things or, or the things that are so easily disprovable, like the size of his inauguration crowd, yeah. you know, things that reinforce his image. He's willing to lie about sort of relentlessly because it is all about image. Um, and that's what Bateman is trying to construct, um, especially in the way, like if you read, 
the novel or it, to a lesser degree in the film when he does these litanies of this person is wearing this designer for, for their jacket, this designer for their tie, this type of shirt, these type of shoes. It, it becomes sort of obsessive in what goes into constructing that image of a successful male in the patriarchal capitalist model. Um, and, and we see that in, in also in the way that Trump lashes out at anyone. Um, my, my favorite one was when Schwarzenegger last year took over The Apprentice. Yeah. And he has this great comment on Twitter um, where he was sparring back and forth with Schwarzenegger. And Trump says something along the lines of, oh, he's so terrible. He's nothing like the, the ratings machine DJT. And he like he refers to himself <laughs> in the third person. And you just have to laugh at that. Like, But the problem with, with culture and sort of this ultimate, you know, overreaction to everything is that it misses the nuance that's necessary to call that sort of hypocrisy out. Yeah. But we also get like too fixated on the hypocrisy, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's a violation of style right. uh, and, and, and sort of social norms. And so like, again, Donald Trump's like weaponized is, I think you mm-hmm. used the term he's weaponized this response to his vulgarity as a way to just sort of let the system continue on unchecked. Right. And, and so while there's one social identity that his supporters are buying into, um, there's an equal and o- opposite um, social identity of what a president or what a politician is supposed yeah. to be. And in the same way, Trump supporters can't, you know, rectify the, the contradictions to the white male tycoon model. The people who are opposed to Donald Trump equally can't rectify, no, this is who he is. Yeah. You can't force him to be presidential. They keep saying, oh, when's he going to make his presidential pivot? And never, because that's not who he is. And you can't try and force a model that doesn't fit onto something like that. Yeah. And I do have to say like from just sort of the standpoint of rhetoric, um, I do the people who defend Trump's the vulgarity and that sort of thing uh, as being, well, he's just honest, right? Um, that's, that's what makes him good is because he's honest. He's not like all these other phonies. I, I find that a really unsatisfying answer because partially, you know, for rhetorical purposes, when you step into the role of president, there are rhetorical constraints that come mm-hmm. with that identity. It's, yeah. a, it's an identity you put on, right? And so, um, and, and it's not unimportant to, to, <laughs> to adhere to these identities, right? I mean, as a teacher, there are things, I could do in a classroom to entertain my students and, and be quote unquote real because I'm not like those other stuffy professors. Right. Mm-hmm. But there are also, there's a level of appropriateness for me to do that as well. And I have to always bear that in mind. Now pushing those boundaries is often uh, useful. Um, the, the problem is when, you know, he's just obliterating and ignoring them. And so what we lose is all sense of propriety. And I think yeah. that that is a problem. I, I will say I'm making fun of liberals quite a bit for, for overreacting the, the Trump derangement syndrome or whatnot, but it is a problem. Um, maybe not as big a problem. It's not impeachable. Right. But. Right. Yeah. But I think, I think that's a valuable thing to teach. And, and my, my ultimate conclusion in this death of irony is that, the real irony is it's the Republicans who, since about 1980, have been launching this ongoing campaign against higher ed and more specifically against defunding the humanities. And what they've really done is created the 
perfect environment for Trump to come to the presidency because people don't have the critical skills to use something like a Warnke article to go back and look at Bateman and then sort of project that forward to see those same traits in Trump and and what Ellis was critiquing so far way back when, that they've basically created the system where they have taken all of the weapons that we would have in defense of someone like this coming to power by by their their conscious effort to keep defunding it. And it, it does. It, it, one instantiation of that that drives me crazy, I think it's Chuck Grassley. Um, he's a... Is he a senator? I don't remember. Um, Something like that. Yeah, yeah. and he—I um, should know that. It sounds like a really ignorant, uh, but uh, he's a you know politician, famous politician, and, and he's every once in a while goes on these Twitter like uh, tirades against um, the History Channel for showing things like ancient aliens and stuff like that. And, and the irony of that is, is History Channel is doing that because of the the profit motive, right? I mm-hmm. mean, there's, there's no other reason to do that except that is what makes money. If you really care about that, why don't you fund PBS so they can make, you know, like legitimate historical documentaries again, right? Yeah, and, and the really funny thing about that whole premise of um, – sort of giving the audience what they want um, comes up in in Trump as well is that he's you know if you think about his campaign yeah. rallies and the thing that that uh, you know he, he's playing into that he's feeding into that the locker up the drain the swamp all yeah. of these sort of catchphrases make America great again um, all play on this idea of fear um, and so one of the things that I look at in this article is how does the brain react to the fear and what cognitive psychology says is that Republicans are sort of ripe or, or, or sort of right-minded conservative people are ripe for um, playing into this narrative because they have an enlarged amygdala often, which is the, the anxiety center. And so Make America Great Again is saying, okay, we're going to go back to the past because it was better, whereas people on the left tend to have a better sense of thing, wanting things to change. So they don't want to go backwards. They want to be forward looking. Um, and this came from uh, a study at Yale that, that appeared in the Washington Post um, and talking about how we can sort of, they, what's what they called amygdala, amygdala hijacking, where you take people's fears and, and again, you weaponize that idea and it sort of skews them over. And the thing that's so interesting in, in these initial interviews with, with, um, Ellis in 2016, as he's doing this sort of like anniversary tour, one of the statements that he made that I, I had to argue against because of sort of talking about how we get stuck in these hermeneutic loops with social identity was he said, you know, Bateman wouldn't be able to support Trump now. He won't, he would support Trump in 1987, but he wouldn't support him now because of who he's appealing to. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of an unfounded statement based on this hermeneutic circle or this feedback loop is that he gets, Bateman would still be stuck in idolizing Trump. So, you know, anything that would contradict that wouldn't matter to him because he was already there in the first place. So there is a way to get around these maybe inclinations, I suppose Mm -hmm. we do. I would love to know more about that, actually. The sort of biological, if there are biological reasons for why we, you know, think the way we do about things, it is kind of terrifying on some level. Well, (laughs) it's it's all based in fear. That's what all of the the cognitive research. There was another, this came out again right before Trump was elected um, in Rolling Stone. Neil Strauss, who has been a ghostwriter on a a, a bunch of other books um, and has published work on his own. Um, And ironically, there's there's a porn tie in here because he was a ghostwriter. 
writer for for a Jenna Jameson autobiography, um, and that sort of fits with the whole Stormy Daniels narrative and Trump's sort of sexual preferences or whatever. Um, but this article that was in Rolling Stone was called, um, you know, we why we're living in an age of fear, and it talks about how fear is sort of the number one. Um, factor or, or more so anxiety which is fear of the unknown basically yeah. is the number one motivating factor in political ideal ideology formation um and, it, and so it's it's a long article but it's definitely sort of thought-provoking and it ties to that yale study um yeah and it's related i think to the propensity towards uh conspiracy theories mm-hmm. um which you know the right has you know, that's a dominantly a right wing um, mode of thinking historically. And yet, uh, and I actually predicted this, maybe not publicly, but privately, that when Trump was elected, the left was going to become susceptible to conspiracy theories and, mm-hmm. and these kind of viral stories that sound, oh, this is so, I want this to be true so much <laughs> yeah. that I'm going to share it, right? Uh, and it's actually true. And I think largely, uh, I think quite a bit of the left's preoccupation in the first year of his of his presidency, and when I say the left, I mean liberals, okay? I, I guess I want to be careful with my language there, uh, left-leaning liberals, center-left liberals, um, has been like conspiratorial in nature. I mean, and some of the stories that we've just like chased until they died, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the peeing on the bed and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's, it's no different than the conspiratorial uh, comfort zone of, of an Alex Jones. It's just directed in a different direction and yeah. it's based on fear mm-hmm. uh, and, and just sort of this, holy crap, what just happened moment. Like I knew that was going to have that effect on people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're a little bit talking about Patrick Bateman and whether he would sort of be a Trump supporter now. I, that term is so slippery to me though, because I mean, recently, uh, Politico, published an article about Johnstown. Yeah. Which, which yeah. Really, that's included in my, yeah. in my sort of response too. Yeah. And, and so, and it, and it, he, the article, the, the reporter shows up in Johnstown, which is a very, if you're not from Pennsylvania, it's a really, you know, run down area, formerly a big steel and uh, coal area. And, uh, and now it's all the indus- industries left and it's very in a lot of hardship. And, and so in a lot of ways, it looks like what we, the Trump voter that we project mm-hmm. the sort of toothless hillbilly kind of stereotype. Right. Uh, and, and so Johnstown kind of embodies that in a lot of ways. Um, and so this reporter shows up and, and interviews a few people who are still Trump supporters, even after being disappointed with him. And, and it ends with them using the N word. Uh, the article yeah. ends in this really kind of um, powerful, like, emotive moment there um and that story actually got a lot of backlash uh mm-hmm. and they actually pre- they actually printed politico to their credit printed a uh, not a retraction but a uh the rebuttal from uh, some local residents because johnstown itself actually went for hillary clinton yeah like the city itself went for hillary clinton now the county that it's in which is much more rural and where a lot of the money is in Cambria County is not in Johnstown proper, right? And so, um, the, the county itself went for, um, Donald Trump, but Johnstown proper went for Hillary Clinton. And, uh, it, it was a little unfair. They could have gone to any town and found five people to say terrible things, right? Right. right. Um, but they, it, it was like a, they're painting Johnstown in this light because it looks like the stereotype of the quote Trump voter when by and large, I mean, 
the people who voted for Trump are the same people who voted for Mitt Romney, right? I right. mean, you know, with I mean, there were exceptions on the fringes, which was probably what swung the election in a different direction. But you've got wealthy people in suburbs and and that you know are interested in low taxes and Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, right? Yeah, and and, so, <laughs> and, and Ellis really there the, this great interview from from April two thousand seventeen with him. I think it's with. Uh, I think the website's called 429. Um, he does this thing where he's talking about all of these people in Hollywood who, and, and you know, who are supposed to be liberal, left-leaning, whatever, who, who admitted to him to voting for Trump. And he sort of sells them out in this article. And he's like, look, the real thing for them is money. Like that's, that's what's motivating them. And so, um, there's also this idea with, um, and this was something that was skewered, um, I want to say on, Samantha B or, or, you know, one of those late night shows where they said like, look, working class just doesn't have to be white rural coal miners or, right. or whatever, white rural steel workers. You know, there are a lot of other people that fit into working class. And effectively, you know, even that characterization, that oversimplification by media of saying this is what a Trump supporter looks like is effectively playing into this idea of social identity. They're trying to oversimplify, create a type. And what we really need is more nuance to be able to say, like, yeah. OK, maybe these people do support Trump. But, you know, there's there's a lot more to it than just, you know, their job as their identity or their lack of job as an identity. Yeah. And it, it'll again, allows us to put a face like an individual person who is responsible for making racist choices, right? Or, mm -hmm. or whatever, uh, on a more structural problem that is more difficult and scarier to deal with, because then I might have to give up something myself, right? Uh, if we're talking about structure. Yeah, and I remember this a little bit when I, I worked for a, a small newspaper in, um, in a rural farming community for about a year and a half before I started here. Um, and one of the things that was going on at that point was the, the sort of blizzard or bath salts epidemic that sort of predated oh, yeah, the opioids. Yeah. Um, Forgot all about that. And, and one of the things that I noticed was that every story about it led off with an individual person because, and this is one of the things I teach in rhetoric too, is if you want to have an impact with an audience, you need to put a face on an issue right away. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be what they're trying to enforce with these, uh, with that Johnstown story from Politico. Yeah. They're trying to put a face on what the working class is and, you know, ignore any any nuance or any sort of complication of that because you know it, it's easier to deal with oversimplifications yeah because the, and like concluding that article with the use of the n-word uh in the nfl it was something about the the kneeling protests um that was a, a, like a, a very clear way of trying to paint in a very simple box, people who like this person like him because he is racist, right? And right. That's much easier for me to deal with than someone who's might be actually a legitimately good person mm -hmm. in many areas, most areas of their life who still found a reason to vote for Donald Trump, right? I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it kind of makes you think, um, I was I was thinking as you as you were saying that the, there are very good people on both sides. And, <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I think that to exclude someone um, just because they voted for Trump or, or to sort of, you know, write them off as being unredeemable or deplorable as, as Hillary Clinton did um, is, is a big problem in, in the 
as well, you know, to sort of oversimplify and, you know, write them off doesn't, doesn't do any good to advancing a discussion or understanding why they made the decision that they made. I mean, my dad and I disagree very heavily in terms of politics. He's, he's run for office as a Republican and, and my wife and I could not be any further removed from that. But, you know, for someone who is in his position as someone about ready to retire, who, you know, it fits into sort of the, not, the, the upper sphere of, you know, the people who benefit from this new tax bill, yeah. you know, and the tax breaks and things like that. But it makes sense for his ideology to support Trump because it, you know, in, in essence sort of bolsters other Republicans. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't voting him so, for him so much because of who Trump is or the social identity that he projects, but just that he's a Republican and he sort of, you know, checked those other boxes. I don't think that my dad's an inherently immoral person or supports, <laughs> you know, the, the 19 sexual assault charges that Trump has out right. and that are sort of, you know, have been cast off to the side, even with the Me Too movement. They did a press conference with three of, of his accusers and it just sort of, you know, because the news cycle is so fast or whatever, it sort of got lost in the, in the mix again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, I mean, also going back to that, but Trump, I think has already inoculated himself uh, against most of these like charges. Like what else can he do or say? <laughs> He's been caught on tape doing things, saying right. things. That right. are awful, and and right? even, even worse than that, we were talking about sort of that dark period for him where he yeah. goes out. Um, one of the things that came out in that, that dark period was a, uh, a biography that sort of had to be pulled called The Last Tycoon. Um, and there was right before um, the piece about the art of the deal ghostwriter, they had interviewed this guy as well, um, who, who was writing The Last Tycoon, who sort of documents that in the divorce settlement from Iv- Ivana, right? I is, think Ivana. Yeah, yeah. Ivanka's the daughter. So yeah. yeah. Um, but in the divorce settlement, she made claims of rape and she mm. used that term and that in order for her to get her payout, she actually retracted that, mm. that term. Um, and this was sort of detailed in, you know, court documents and then was sort of relayed in this last tycoon. And um, it was in that period where Trump was sort of in that dark phase. He wasn't quite as, you know, out there. And it may be in part because that book was, you know, in, in, in that story in particular was circulating. So it may have been a time for him to lay low to avoid sort of the negative press. Hmm. I, I suppose. Yeah. I, but I going back, one thing I want to go back to though, um, you talked about story and how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of powerfully deceptive, I think, uh, yeah. in that way. And anybody who's gone to church, I mean, it's kind of a, a hacky way of starting a sermon is these little anecdotes, mm-hmm. uh, illustrations, they call them in, in uh, homiletics about the, uh, you tell a story about somebody, uh, that's kind of cute folksy, uh, story. Then you get into your subject, then you conclude back with the story, right? As a way. Yeah. And it's a very handy and kind of frankly easy way mm-hmm. of, uh, of capturing an audience's imagination and getting them to listen to you. Um, and it happens like, uh, it, it's not just limited to that kind of, um, moral instruction though right i mean it is a way to create political action as well and and i think that it's actually i'm i think i'm over it frankly yeah i gotta say with the going back once more time uh, my audience i'm sure sick of me recounting my day my weekend at the wild goose festival a couple years ago but the theme of that was story and it was great there were wonderful stories about people's lives but those telling an individual story 
blows that individual experience up so that it overwhelms the kind of nuance and the kind of structural issues that are much more important on the long and the big scale of things. Right. And I think that goes into why they left the Trump references completely out of the 2000 film adaptation. Yeah. Totally, totally. Well, so going, let's bring Patrick Bateman back into this. Mm-hmm. So let's be a little bit more specific as we can. Like, what is, why, why would Ellis claim that Bateman would no longer support Trump? It's because of some sort of class distinction he's kind of yeah. seeking. Yeah. So, and, and this is something that I, I, I like and, and, or I like to think about, which is that, Basically, Trump's initial aesthetic, which he still holds on to, um, all of the gold, everything, marble, um, it's sort of this like Versailles yeah. aesthetic, I mean, for yeah. lack of a better term. Um, if, if we're going to say, if, if I'm going to sort of, you know, um, buy into Ellis's claim that he would have, you know, dropped off, part of it is probably because of how we perceive wealth. So if you think about the wealthiest people in the world right now, actually, the in vogue thing to do is to downplay your wealth, yeah. to wear your hoodie and your jeans. Um, you know, it kind of started initially with, um, Steve Jobs and his, his Apple showmanship at those, those, like when they announced the iPhone and things like that, his, his black turtleneck jeans uniform. We see it more so with, uh, Zuckerberg and his, his t-shirt hoodie and jeans. You know, there's sort of this idea that the aesthetic of wealth is one of downplaying it now. Even if you think about someone who is older money, like Warren Buffett, he still lives in, you know, the starter home that he bought however long ago. Um, and so one of the, the, the things that would support Ellis's claim about Trump sort of disowning, or I mean, Bateman disowning Trump is really the fact that his aesthetic for what is wealth and what is success no longer holds up. But the problem is, and I I make this kind of comparison in in my writing as well, is kind of like other, you know, trends like fashion, they take a while to get to middle America. In in many ways, like that idea or that social identity of what wealth could be or, or, or what living up to this American dream should be is sort of delayed in getting to people in those middle classes who sort of make up the stereotype of what we would think a Trump supporter looks like. Um, and so I think that, that that's, a, that's a big component of it for, for Ellis's claim. And so Bateman would actually buy the stereotype, the Johnstown stereotype of the Trump supporter. Like, oh, yeah, definitely. That's and, how, yeah. and he would reject it because he wants to be seen as wealthy, as successful. He wants to be seen the way that those supporters in theory using social identity would view Trump as this successful white male tycoon. He wants to position himself that way. And so if he were evolving with the times and the trends, then Patrick Bateman would be kind of like the the sort of stereotype that you see in a lot of Ellis profiles where he shows up at the door barefoot in jeans with a an unzipped hoodie and he's sort of constructed Ellis has also constructed kind of an image of himself and how he wants to be received as kind of this like hip not not sort of self-absorbed character that so many of his characters are yeah I do think it's ironic, though, that um, Trump's children, his boys, look a lot like Patrick Bateman. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, and they, they still style themselves after mm-hmm. Patrick Bateman in a lot of ways. And, 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 and they're talking about the death of irony. Yeah, there have been articles that, that sort of put those pictures together of, of Bateman as played by Christian Bale with the slicked back hair yeah. and the really expensive suit and the fancy tie. And, you know, um, and so they're still. 
you know, it's not just Donald Trump who's buying into the aesthetic. In many ways, it's sort of the whole Trump family, or at least the men in the, in the Trump family, that are trying to project this very Patrick Bateman-y, you know, late 1980s, early 1990s image of what wealth and success look like. Um, and there have some been some pretty interesting pieces um, saying, uh, making the comparisons about Trump and, and Trumpism with sort of what Bateman was meant to critique. Um, there was one particular one in, in Salon um, that, that positions those two things side by side um, of, of saying like Trump is Patrick, what tra- Patrick Bateman was in 1991, you know? Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. That, I mean, that's one thing I wanted to sort of maybe explore just for a minute was like, what does this say about Trumpism? And I mean, Trumpism, is a kind of style. It's it's a social posture then, mm-hmm. um, and and it that's why it can appeal across. Okay, this is me making. I'm thinking off the top of my head, so this is probably going to be totally wrong. But I, I, I've all I've been always curious as to how people of kind of my class uh, can uh, like align themselves with folks who are like traditional Republican voters who are going to vote for whoever won that nomination, right? The mm-hmm. very wealthy, uh, and so. To me, like this shiftiness of the posturing is one re- one way to explain that. Like, so Trumpism is a social posture that is situationally adapted, uh, and so I'm sure Donald Trump doesn't speak vulgar in, in such vulgar terms um, in front of people like Patrick Bateman. Uh, mm-hmm. That, but he does. He has a way of feeding off of what an audience wants, uh, and so he's able to sort of adapt his persona. Um, in order to sort of please that person in in a, in a given moment. Yeah, I think that there's there's definitely something to that wanting to appeal in the same way that we saw with Patrick Bateman in that kind of uh, response to the anti-Semitic comment where yeah. he says every politically correct thing that he can sort of recall in yeah. the moment. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> and and so he, you know, there there's a really great comment in, and it's in the art of the deal, and it's sort of been trotted out a lot of times since then but it's something along the lines of of trump through his or or the the character of trump in the art of the deal you know who as created and made more palatable by tony schwartz the ghostwriter says i use the media the way the media uses me i use hyperbole i'm i'm a salesman basically i'm selling them what they want i'm giving them what they want there's there's some comment along those lines that comes directly out of um of the art of the deal. And it's, it's hard not to see that sort of like situationalism that that's being applied. So sort of being, if, if we want to say, you know, there, there've been all these comments about Trump not being intelligent or not being mentally stable. If there's one thing that you can say, if we want to call it positively about him is his ability to read people in the moment. Oh yeah. Because there have been people who, who outright just hate everything that he's done as president, but we'll be like, Oh yeah, when I was with him, he was a, you know, a nice affable guy. He said things I wanted to hear. And one of the things was um, taken from Tony Schwartz's sort of following him around in the process of writing the art of the deal. And that's the desire to please, which we also see in Bateman, but it came from sort of the way Trump signed off of all of these phone calls that he let Tony Schwartz listen to, which is his last thing he said before he hung up the phone was always, you're the best. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I, gosh, I should go read that book sometime. <laughs> it's. I can't say that it's it's pleasure reading. It 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 is, 
it's extremely tedious, but it's meant to be. Yeah. Um, there, there's also another really interesting article um, by Bernard or Bertold Schoen um, that talks about sort of the parallels between Bateman and the successful male and autism yeah. and the this sort of willingness to do what and be sort of cutthroat and do whatever needs to be done that we celebrate them when we see them in a white successful male but if we see them in any other context we we associate them to some degree with with autism hmm. which is That's you know really interesting especially in 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 wake of the backlash to the comments about people making those same suggestions about autism, about Trump's youngest son, yeah. Barron, um, you know, and this this well predated sort of the um, the Bateman Trump parallel narrative th yeah. that that shown article did. Yeah, I just think that that um, thinking about Trumpism then as a is less a set of political positions, as mm -hmm. you said before. I'm not really there. There is no set of, there's no set of beliefs that guide these decisions. Thinking of Trumpism as a social posture, uh, and, that and is, preserving an identity. Yes. You know, um, doing anything. One of the things that they, they acknowledge about Trump is the one thing that you can count on is anytime he even feels remotely slighted is his, his need to defend that brand. And there was a really interesting article in, in the Atlantic that said, you know, this came out right before he was inaugurated that said, more than anything, the presidency is going to kill the Trump brand because he's going to be exposed and under critique in a way that he hasn't been before. And to some extent, he's not going to be able to control that brand. What that article failed to acknowledge was he doesn't care. As long as he's defending his brand, he's actually sort of keeping it that that aesthetic going of that that violent defense of whatever that image is that social identity yeah this kind of reminds me recently on twitter and facebook some folks that we follow have been uh, kind of making fun of rod dreyer the benedict option guy because mm -hmm. he is touchy like anytime someone writes something critical about him or tweets something he'll write ten thousand words in yeah. defense of himself yeah. Yeah. And it's like there's something similar there's a similarity there as much as rod dreyer hates trump right mm -hmm. um but no i think that that patrick bateman then as a lens it's just a really handy way to kind of get your head around trump's ability to sort of get enough votes. I mean, I know he mm -hmm. lost the popular vote by, by a lot, but he got votes where he needed to largely on the ability, I think, to adapt that identity. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, Trumpism may just be as simple as rhetorical canniness. Yeah. And, and to really think about this in, in the context of Bateman, um, is that so much of maintaining that identity is physical. Um, you know, uh, for Trump, it's his hair. It's the way that he dresses. It's the you're fired like pose. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've ever seen that, that really great thing where he's on the red carpet and he's like just mouthing you're fired, not actually <laughs> even saying it so that they can get that, that image. Um, Bateman does the same thing and, and he reacts violently in defense of it. Um, there's a scene in the film where it's, it's probably one of the most famous scenes in, because it, it translates to being sort of part of the, 
the art that goes on the the director's cut of the DVD with the chainsaw where he's running after the prostitute and he's he's yeah. naked and all he has to cover himself is the chainsaw. Um, <laughs> and at one point during that scene as he's chasing her, she kicks him in the face and he responds in sort of a really vulgar way, but he says, not the face, because for him, the face is one way to maintain that position, that social identity to protect that brand. And anything that damages that, he has to lash out violently. So I make the, the argument here in, in that particular scene is, you know, yeah, he's going to kill her anyway. Like, that's part of his plan. But the thing that provokes him to actually, and if you haven't seen the movie yet, I'm sorry to spoil this, but he actually throws yeah. the chainsaw down the stairwell and hits her in stride like he's throwing, you know, yeah. like Tom Brady throwing a touchdown yeah. pass. He just nails her with this um, with this chainsaw, um, which sort of plays off of that unreality of that whole sequence as well but he he has to lash out or 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 get revenge immediately and we see that same tendency in trump so is it a product of trump or is it a product of that patriarchal male capitalist model where you want to defend the image of you more so than actually have any substance behind that image yeah and by the way tom brady also a trump supporter yes uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, but uh, in all in all that face going back to his face, it's also the thing that makes him indistinguishable mm-hmm. from everybody else, right? And so that face that makes him indistinguishable from everybody else is what gets him how he gets away with his crimes because a people don't think the person he says he killed is actually dead because they have mistaken him for somebody else, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't think he is who he says he is because they've mistaken him for somebody else, maybe. Right. And, right. and so there's a sense in which, um, the, it's, that's the structural critique. It isn't mm-hmm. an in, the individual isn't important. It is the individual performing a social role that can, that, uh, that has power over, over right. society. And it's, it's about keeping that, that social role or that image, but then doing one thing that sets you off just and gives you that slightest advantage. So your business card. Exactly. You knew where I was going. <laughs> oh, I so, so, so in that scene though, in the book and in the movie, um, right before they get to the business card scene, um, he acknowledges that Marcus Halberstram, this guy that he often gets confused for, he's like, I see how people can get confused. We go to the same barber. We have the same haircut. We wear the same glasses. Um, and as he's doing that, he's sort of cataloging and naming all of the brands and, you know, products and everything. And he says, you know, but I, 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 I wear the haircut better or something like that. <laughs> so he's trying to pick out just, you know, we want to all look the same, but at the same time, we want to have that one little thing that sets us apart and puts us just incrementally above those other really successful white guys. And the thing that comes out is sort of the anxiety that he has as they're doing this kind of like penis envy thing with, totally, with, yeah. with their, as they're putting out their business cards on the table. And it goes to the point that the, the guy they're competing with, Paul Owen, who in, or Paul Allen in the film, who's played by Jared Leto, um, sort of trumps all of them when not he puts his card on the table, but someone else puts his card out and all of the men sort of retract their cards after they've gone through this whole elaborate thing of saying, you know, what font they have and what, what kind of card stock it's printed on. Rail it's, bone it's, or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. A Cillian rail is the, the <laughs> font. Um, and, and, and Patrick has this like existential crisis moment when he said, I can't believe he likes his card better than he likes mine. And you see like in his physical mannerisms, he's sweating, he's going through this hand wringing and it's all about like, he didn't win that one competition to put his 
social image, just that increment above the others. And so he loses that. And then he, um, in the next scene, he does something very violent. I think that's the scene that, that where he goes and stabs a homeless person. A homeless in passing. Guy, yeah. yeah right. it's, and it's so like in any of these instances of something attacking his image, he responds violently, even to the point like during his sexual exchange with these prostitutes, it's him recording it. And so you get, you get the color image of the regular camera sort of then filtered through him recording it with an old school, like shoulder yeah. top, big videotape camera where it's in black and white. And he's, mm posing and posturing and trying to create this image of himself even then yeah yeah that's really interesting um this i mean it's so we were just kind of informally talking about this but this is kind of just what i was hoping the show would end up is uh maybe a through using this fictional kind of adaptation of trump i mean trump was an inspiration for that movie right Mm -hmm. um we're actually able to i think for me, at least, I'm sure other people have had these thoughts before, but to identify Trumpism not as a set of like uh, ideological beliefs, but just as a set, just as a, a system of posturing uh, and publicly for and, power. And, right? and the thing that, that I sort of equate it to in, in being an illusion is if we view the American dream as an illusion that keeps yeah. people in their social position, yeah. especially people in the middle and lower classes, Trump in many ways, and I, I've, I've sort of thought about going this direction, Patrick Bateman and Trump sort of are the emblem of the American dream or what you can achieve at the top of the American dream. Yeah. And they sort of keep people pursuing the american dream even though they know it's hollow like you know the people at the top know it's hollow but they're already there so it doesn't really matter to them (laughs) it's more about keeping those other people chasing that dream that allows for that social stratification to stay maintained or even to keep advancing you know the people at the top and you know there have been a lot of articles talking about the shrinking middle class yeah um you know sort of that that's seems to be what the American dream could be interpreted as. I'm not saying that it is that, but that's certainly one way to read it as that, that illusion that is comparable in many ways to um, the emptiness of a Bateman or, or of a Donald Trump as just an identity with nothing behind it. And when Donald Trump is in Western Pennsylvania, I mean, he's able to talk about the American dream as um, having a good job in coal mining, right? Mm-hmm. He's defining it in for people in the way they're used to having it defined for them, um, which a does keep them in their kind of class strata, but but b also allows him to adapt Trumpism um, for a, an audience that it's really that in other cases would be totally abhorrent. Yeah, and a right leaning view. Um, I forget what the essay is called now. It's it's in that um, connections three class that we teach. Um, where they they say the the American dream is no longer one thing; it's sort of a moving target, yeah. which is again another way to say like, okay, you stay in your place because we've moved the target. So now the American dream is not so much, um, you know, this universal image as it is something that can be applied to the individual, and that becomes another way to sort of manipulate and and you know, I think that's that, moving that's probably, the goalposts, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's there's a direct quote in that. A Politico article that says um, the Trump supporters haven't moved the goalposts; they've eliminated them altogether. Yeah, um, and that that was from that Politico article from from November that you were talking about about Johnstown. Yeah, well. Chris, thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to 
uh, wrap this up. This has been a great conversation, though. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I feel like I've learned a lot. And I've, I've clarified some of my own thoughts about this. Uh, Chris, Chris Burlingame uh, works here as well. Uh, probably even back on the show later on. It's for others from another point. But um, I want to thank you, the listener. If you have any feedback for us, um, you know, you can always reach us at Facebook or Twitter, uh, sectarianreview at gmail.com. Uh, I don't get too many emails anymore. Usually most of it's going to Facebook. We also have sectarianreviewpodcast.com, and you can find a, uh, a way to reach us there. And by all means, please, please, please go to iTunes, leave a review, and uh, and give us some feedback. So, um, And thanks again to the Blind Revelators <laughs> for uh, letting me use their song, Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down. And I don't do this enough, but thank you to Kristen Philippic, who's the... Uh, Sort of heart and soul, uh, our press liaison for this uh, this network, and she does a lot of great work for us as well. So, y'all have a great day. Rest.